talk this morning about uh, Revelation. So let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 20. Chapter 20. Been anticipating uh, this chapter for some time now because we've been uh, spending so much of our series uh, going through uh, what will be uh, the darkest night in human history during the coming period of the tribulation, uh, climaxing, of course, uh, with the coming of the Son of God who is going to deal with all of those rebellious nations of the earth. When you open up to chapter 20, uh, it becomes bright, becomes glorious, and from then on, nearly everything is just filled with a joyful expectation. And uh, the, the experience of living under the earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to read this morning uh, verses 1 to 6. Uh, this is after the coming of Christ in chapter 19. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and, and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but there shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In those six verses, the expression thousand years is found how many times? I want to count them with you. The first time you'll notice at the end of verse 2, it's the last two words, thousand years, number one. The second time is about uh, three quarters through verse 3, till the thousand years were finished. The third time is at the end of verse 4, the last two words, thousand years. The fourth is in the middle of verse 5, thousand years. Then again, at the end of verse 6, it says thousand years. And we didn't read verse 7, but that also contains another instance. So the simple fact is that in seven verses, we find the expression thousand years six times. Now, we have uh, terms that express uh, an understanding of various lengths of time. Uh, for example, we refer to 10 years as what? A decade. If we refer, refer to 100 years, we call that a, right? And what do we call a 1,000 years? A millennium. Well, this is the only passage in the Word of God that refers to a coming future period of a thousand years. The only passage. 
but it refers to it six times in seven verses. Now, this term millennium has so passed into English usage and uh, particularly into theological usage that the expression the millennium has taken on a common understanding. Now, this is so much the case that if you take any standard dictionary, one of the definitions for the word millennium will say something like this, the prophesied thousand-year reign of Christ at the end of the, end of the age. That's the second definition in dictionary.com, by the way. And it actually says Revelation 20, 1 to 5, as a reference. So millennium is a common expression for what is described in these verses. However, even though that's the case, the subject of the millennium is one of the most disputed of all Christian doctrines. In fact, in a commentary by Stephen Gregg, who puts all four views of the millennium uh, next to one another in columns, he writes this, it is no exaggeration to call this the most controversial chapter in the Bible. So why would there be any controversy over these uh, six verses, especially when the passage again and again uses the same chronological expression? Well, first of all, there's some controversy about whether or not the thousand years will ever really take place. Secondly, there's a controversy about the nature of what happens if it does take place. In fact, that second one is really, I think, the heat of the controversy. Uh, it's this business of Christ and his followers reigning. I mean, if there is uh, a there's going to be this future reign, well, what's the nature of that reign going to be? I mean, basically, you've got uh, two options. Um, some people say, well, maybe this reign is just a spiritual reign. Maybe it's the reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of his people. So he's governing them internally. Well, no, other people say it's not just a spiritual reign, uh, but it's actually an earthly reign. Uh, Jesus returns to earth in chapter 19. Now he's reigning all over the physical globe. So uh, this is a physical, political reign. And then, of course, you've got people who say, well, it's not really either or, but it's both and. Uh, Jesus does reign spiritually, but in the future, it's going to be an earthly reign like that. But this is what tends to be the core of the issue, the nature of Jesus' reign. But thirdly, there's also the whole matter of the timing of his coming with reference to that reign. Does he come before Revelation 20, 1-6 to takes place, or do these events in chapter 20 happen and then Jesus returns. In other words, uh, maybe it isn't that the coming in Revelation 19 really precedes chapter 20 and the rain. Maybe the rain in chapter 20 actually precedes his coming in chapter 19. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So you have the issue of whether these thousand years will actually take place. If they do, then what's the nature of that rain? And what will be the timing of of Jesus coming with reference to these thousand years. And then, of course, you've got some related questions like this one. What is the binding of Satan? Uh, when did that occur? Or when could it occur? 
And what is the nature of that? And then fifthly, uh, what's this business of a resurrection in verse 4? It says they came to life. And then the end of verse 5 talks about that as the first resurrection. So what is that? Is it actually a physical resurrection uh, that he's talking about there? Now, it may not have occurred to any of you to debate those particular points. But I dare say that some of you who have been raised in uh, Christian churches uh, have at one time or another found yourself engaged in a debate about one or more of those questions. Now, what I'm trying to do really here is set us up for our study this morning, because before we even get into these verses, I want to sort through the various positions. And I want to reach a foundation on which we are going to approach this passage and other passages of the Bible that will deal with this particular subject. Now, if you've ever read a sermon by C.H. Spurgeon, or you've listened to uh, maybe a, a dispensational preacher uh, on prophecy, or maybe you've picked up a systematic theology to read, uh, then you, you've no doubt encountered various interpretations on this passage, and also in other related passages. Uh, you've got the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. Uh, you've got the prophecies in Isaiah. You've got the final uh, couple chapters in Zechariah. The prophecies about Israel in Jeremiah. There's, uh, you know, there's almost a, an infinite number of, of books and commentaries and theologies and sermons that reflect a basic view that a person has with reference to those passages. And maybe some of their writings confused you because you didn't really understand where they were coming from. You didn't understand their point of view, their, their point of reference. So what we want to do today is really not so much work through these verses as we normally would, but I want to do something that uh, unfortunately may be a little distasteful to you. It may be a little uh, academic perhaps, but nevertheless, I think it will prove to be quite helpful moving forward. We're going to work through the views this morning, and we're going to do it accurately and uh, we really are just going to let the scholars speak for themselves. Uh, I don't think this is particularly hard to understand. And you may not remember all the details, and that's okay. Uh, but my main concern is that we understand the reasoning of people behind the various positions. Now think of it like this. Uh, when you go to a car mechanic, and uh, he has to work on uh, something in your engine, if he could explain to you how that piece functions and the relationship that that piece has to the rest of the machine, well, then you feel a whole lot better about authorizing him to do what he has to do. Well, when we approach these verses in the future, and when we look at other related passages of Scripture, I think it will help if you can understand why we are taking that particular approach to that piece of the machine when we fit it all together. Does that make sense? All right. So today I want to preach to you simply on the subject of the millennium, and I don't have a formal outline, uh, but I've given you some notes to keep up with it. And basically I want to look at the various answers that have been offered to those questions that I just raised about the millennium. So what about the binding of Satan? 
What about the first resurrection? What about the thousand years? Uh, what's the timing of Christ's coming with reference to all of that? All right. Here are some answers to those questions that uh, the various groups of people will hold. You have to excuse me. I'm a little bit hoarse this morning. I'm still getting over uh, asthma. I want to start with the answer, first of all, of what is called amillennialism. All right. Now, I want to ask you to raise your hand if, an, uh, if you're an amillennialist, and there may be some of you out there. Uh, but if you are, this is your viewpoint. Maybe you didn't fully understand it. This is your viewpoint. Take the word millennium and just add the single letter A on front of it. And your viewpoint is that there will never be a millennium. The little A negates the whole thing. It's like the word amoral. Amoral doesn't mean someone is immoral. It means they have no morality. Well, it's the same idea. An amillennialist believes... There will never be a future period of time during which Jesus and his saints will reign as it's described in this passage. Now, believe it or not, this was the majority view of the Reformers, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And that's one reason why this is the majority view of churches that we would refer to as Reformed churches. There are many Reformed churches in Australia, including most of the Evangelical Anglicans and the Presbyterians. You just need to know that. Uh, If you know uh, the Christian counselor Jay Adams, this is his position. Uh, This is the position of very well-known Old Testament commentators like Bruce Waltke and Edward J. Young. This is the position of J.I. Packer, Uh, This is the position of New Testament commentators like F.F. Bruce and William Hendrickson and Leon Morris. And most of you don't know these names, but that's okay. My point is that we are talking about a viewpoint that is held by some very devout, Bible-believing, godly people. And I want to make that clear. Now, many of you will immediately say, wait a minute. The passage actually uses the expression thousand years six times. So how can they say there's no millennium? Seems pretty obvious. Well, I really want someone in their camp to answer uh, our questions about this position. And I'm using a book that's entitled The Meaning of the Millennium that's edited by Robert Klaus. And it's uh, subtitled Four Views. And what he has done is really allow the scholars from the the various views to state their position, and then they get to critique all the other views. Uh, In other words, uh, you really get it right from the horse's mouth. So uh, an amillennialist will give his position, uh, but then uh, one of the other guys, the post or premier, will get up and say, "Uh uh-uh, no, you're wrong. Uh, But then they get to present their own view. But then the amillennialists can come back and say, oh, no, you're wrong. And you can see that it ends up being quite a debate. And uh, whoever's reading the book gets quite an education. Well, the amillennialist who presents the case in this book is a man named Anthony Hakima. He's the professor or was the professor of theology at Calvin Theological Seminary, a reform seminary, for many years. So I want him to answer our questions. So when we say... What about the thousand years? 
Here's what Dr. Hokima says, which is the view of the vast majority of amillennialists. Okay? He's going to say, well, look at the passage a little more closely. Because what you have in chapter 20 are really two sections. It's verses 1 to 3, and then it's verses 4 to 6. Verses 1 to 3 tell you what's happening right now on earth. Not in the future, it's right now on the earth. And the verses 4 to 6 tell you what's happening right now in heaven. Okay? So, when you ask about the thousand-year problem, what do I say as an amillennialist? Well, I say, you know what? That whole, po- whole passage, it's, not, it's actually not prophetic. It's really talking about what's happening right now. In verses 1 to 3, happening on earth. What does that say? Well, those verses primarily talk about the binding of Satan. So when Amillennius says, well, that's already happened. And Satan is bound right now on earth. Okay? What about what's happening in heaven? Well, that's verses 4 to 6. What's that all about? Well, uh, the end of verse 4 talks about those people coming to life. They're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And, of course, our question would be, well, how can coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years be going on right now? Well, it talks about this as being the first resurrection. So Dr. Hokima writes, I do not believe that those words describe a bodily resurrection, but rather the transition from physical death to life in heaven with Christ. Now, maybe you, uh, you've had a loved one who knows the Lord, and uh, maybe they've passed away in uh, this past year or two. Well, Dr. Hakima would say that what happened to them is that when they died, their spirit went to be with the Lord. And that's what this passage is referring to as the first resurrection. We would call it absent from the body is present with the Lord. So their spirit went into the presence of Christ, and now they are reigning there with him. And someday there's going to be a second resurrection. That's when their body rises. And their body will be reunited with their spirit. But the first resurrection took place when they died and went to be with the Lord. Well, what about the thousand years? He says, the thousand year reign of Revelation 24 is a reigning with Christ in heaven of the souls of believers who have died. This reign is not something to be looked for in the future. It's going on now and will be until Christ returns. And when you say to him, well, brother, it says a thousand years six times, right? So how can you say it's going on now? How can you say it's been going on for as long as believers have been dying? I mean, that's been happening a whole lot longer than a thousand years, if I'm not mistaken. Answer. The number 1,000, which is used here, must not be interpreted in a literal sense. All right, so how should we interpret it? Listen to this very carefully, because this is a little bit hard to understand. He says, since the number 10 signifies completeness, and since 1,000 is 10 to the third power, we may think of the expression 1,000 years as standing for a complete period, a very long period of indeterminate length. 
Get that? So uh, 10 is the number of completeness. And so what we have here is completeness to the third power, right? Because it's 10, 100, 1,000. So that means we had a lot of completeness. So this is a completeness that is an indefinite period of time. That's the answer. In other words, it doesn't really mean a thousand years. What it means is it's a long period of complete time. Okay? Now, what about the binding of the devil, verses 1 to 3? If this is going on right now on the earth, uh, while the souls of our departed loved ones are reigning in heaven, what's that all about? Well, here's the answer. He says, Jesus bound the devil when he triumphed over him in the wilderness. The binding of Satan described in Revelation 21-3 means that throughout the gospel age in which we now live, the influence of Satan, though not annihilated, is so curtailed that he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations of the world. All right, so do you understand this position? Basically, they're saying there's not going to be a future thousand-year period of time in which Jesus reigns on the earth. Not going to happen. So, what do you do with this passage? Answer, well, the thousand years, not really a thousand years, but it's an indefinite period of time that's going on and has been going on ever since Jesus bound Satan when he confronted him in the wilderness. So, ever since that time, Satan is bound, and that's why the gospel is going forth unhindered. And every time a believer dies... He goes into the presence of Christ, and that's the first resurrection. And once he gets there, he's reigning, just like the passage says, and he's waiting for the second resurrection when his body will be raised and all of us will be together with the Lord. That is amillennialism in a nutshell. And maybe you're saying, oh, I like that. I'll take that one. Okay? Wait. (laughs) That brings us to a group that is going to step into the circle and take on our millennialism, because obviously not everybody agrees with that. So secondly, I want to give you the answer of post-millennialism to all those questions about the passage. And before I give you their answers, let me point out again that we're dealing with something here that is represented by some very godly people. Uh, Post-millennialism is actually a viewpoint that seems to be the majority viewpoint of the 18th and 19th centuries. For example, this is the viewpoint that was held by Jonathan Edwards. This is the viewpoint of the Princeton theologians, men like A.A. Hodge and Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. They were post-millennialists looking for the fulfillment of this passage. Uh, A.H. Strong was a post-millennialist. If you have Barnes notes, some of you have that. He was a post-millennialist. Ian Murray, uh, the editor of Banner of Truth, wrote many fine books, including uh, one on, uh, it's on Australian church history, a wonderful book. It makes a strong case for the viewpoint I'm going to describe. In fact, he says that this viewpoint is what fueled the missionary movement. So people like David Livingston and William Carey and Adoniram Judson. So this is not a minor viewpoint, although you may not know it as well as uh, millennialism is very popular at the end of the last century. All right, what is their view? Number one, a post-millennialist believes 
that there is going to be a millennium. But right away, he crosses swords with the amillennialist. He says, no, you're wrong. There is going to be a millennium. And when it comes to that period of time and its relationship to the coming of Jesus Christ, he believes that the Lord's coming will be post-millennial. The word post means after the millennium. So a post-millennialist definitely believes there will be a future period of time, like it's described in this passage, but it's going to happen before the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, he will come after the millennium is over, post-millennial. How do they come to that conclusion? Well, here's what a post-millennialist does. He reverses the order of chapters 19 and 20. So that chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, actually chronologically comes before chapter 19, verse 11 and following. He reverses those things chronologically, and so he becomes post-millennial when it comes to the timing of Jesus' second coming. Now, what does he consider then to be the nature of the reign that is described in these verses? Because if you believe that Jesus comes before the millennium to set up his reign on earth, well, that reign means one thing. But if he doesn't come until after the millennium, then what's the nature of the reign that's described during the millennium? Well, let me allow... A.H. Strong, to answer that for you. He believes that through the preaching of the gospel in all the world, which is going on right now, the kingdom of Christ is steadily to enlarge its boundaries until Jews and Gentiles alike become possessed of its blessings, the blessings of the gospel. And a millennial period is introduced, and here's the nature of it now, in which Christianity generally prevails throughout the earth. You got that? In other words, in a post-millennial mindset, the gospel is going to have such success that the whole world will eventually be Christianized. Now, after a thousand years of Christianity dominating the world, then the Lord will come back to earth. Now, that does seem to have fueled many of the early pioneer missionaries. For example, when William Carey went to India, he and his workers hashed out what they called a form of agreement about their working missionary principles. And in it was the consensus that there were certain promises in the Word of God. I want to quote from it now. The promises are fully sufficient to remove our doubts and make us anticipate that not very distant period when he will famish all the gods of India. In other words, he's basically going to starve them out and cause these very idolaters to cast their idols to the moles and to the bats and renounce forever the work of their own hands. So what was Carey anticipating? He wasn't just anticipating the conversion of a couple of Indians maybe establishing a few churches. He was anticipating the day when the gospel would be so successful that all of India would renounce its paganism. Now, in this book I told you about, The Meaning of the Millennium, the proponent of post-millennialism is a man by the name 
of Lorraine Bettner. Listen to his viewpoint. Statistics indicate that world over, Christianity has grown more in the last hundred years than in the preceding 1800. All of the false religions are dying. Christianity alone is able to grow and flourish under modern civilization. So what's he saying is happening? He's saying, well, you know, all the false religions are dying. Christianity is just growing and flourishing. And, and this means that sometime in the future, there's actually going to be a tipping point when all the world will tilt over in favor of Jesus Christ. And he will be from heaven in a spiritual sense. He'll be reigning over all the earth. And after that goes on for a thousand years, he's going to come back to earth and take all the Christians to be with him forever. So it's this picture of a future golden period of time yet to come when Christianity will take over the earth. Now we actually have some hymns that reflect this viewpoint. Because this was a big viewpoint during a time when many of the hymns we sing were, were written. And one of them is, Rise up, O men of God, the church for you doth wait. It's a post-millennial hymn. It's calling on men, bring in the kingdom. And there was actually a movement where there were some people who were willing to go further than that because they saw a future golden period of time when the gospel would bring in much more than just a spiritual domination on the earth. Some of these people, they actually saw uh, the church taking over the governments of the world. And so, you know, there would be a future millennial period and the church would control the world's economy. And the church would censor the world's art and entertainment. The church would look after the world's environment. I mean, it, you know, it's going to be a political domination. And there are post-millennialists who are bent on making this happen. We actually have a name for them. We call them theonomists or uh, Christian reconstructionists because their view is that uh, the whole world should be under God's law, theonomy, God and law. And they're pushing for this to happen socially. People like Gary North and, uh, and Rush Dooney and others have taken this viewpoint. Uh, it was very popular in America. Uh, these guys would promote a vision of the country uh, of, of you know one that was supposed to be under God. And so this is why they push for Christian politicians and Christian laws to be enacted. Now don't get me wrong, you know we should all want Christian in, you know, to, to be in politics, but in a post-millennial uh, post viewpoint, they want it so that the world can finally enter into this golden age of a thousand years of Christian dominance. So that Christ can come after that. But you know, on a practical level, uh, what it means, uh, for example, when it comes to unbelievers or even religious people like, uh, like Roman Catholics, uh, what they see is that if these people don't really embrace the gospel by faith during the millennium, well, we're just going to ship them out. And, uh, and we're going to control all of that for a thousand years. And we'll get rid of all the unbelievers. And, uh, and then Jesus will come back. That's some of the extreme post-millennial views. Well, uh, the question really is, how will that millennium be ushered in? How will we know when it's begun? 
Uh, what's, what's the moment that's going to signal its beginning? Well, the Puritans believed that it would come down to a revival. Uh, and even today, many post-millennialists believe that uh, just as God has promised, when His people repent of their sins and pray at some point in the future, when the church really enters into its calling under the filling of the Spirit, then God is going to send a great worldwide awakening. And it's going to include the conversion of the Jews, just like Zechariah predicts. That's what the Puritans believed. That's what David Livingston believed. That's what William Carey believed. These people and many more were all living in the expectation of this great revival. Because when that happens... It ushers in this wonderful period of time and God's people under the power of Jesus Christ from heaven will be reigning right here on this earth. Now, what about the binding of Satan? Let's get a drink of water, sorry. Well, <clears throat> what will that binding be like during the millennium? Basically, a post-millennialist says that it will simply be the great success of the gospel that is going to diminish Satan's power. So he's not going to be literally bound and cast into a literal pit, but his powers will be tremendously weakened to the point where he can hardly operate at all because the gospel will be so pervasive. It's going to be so powerful in its influence on the earth. That's the binding of Satan in the future, according to a post-millennialist. What about the resurrection described in verse 5? I mean, you know, everybody understands that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a resurrection. Okay, but what if you have your millennium and a first resurrection at that time and people are reigning when they're resurrected, but Jesus hasn't come back yet? So what's that first resurrection all about? Well, the answer that a post-millennialist gives is that this is the victory of the Christian church after centuries of being defeated. In other words, the passage talks about people who die, but it's really symbolic language talking about the church being defeated, if you can make that connection. So when it talks about them coming to life again, well, that symbolically describes uh, that's the first resurrection. That's really Christianity coming into its full strength. So it's symbolic of the church uh, being raised up again so that it can reign during the millennium. You understand that? Am I confusing everybody? Don't worry. Okay? You're probably not going to remember all the details, but I'm just hoping you'll get some of the basics. All right? Uh, so that when someone throws out a term like amil or post-mill or pre-mill and they refer to certain future events, at least you know where they're coming from. Right? If they, talk about, if they talk about no period called the millennium and a reign of Jesus that only happens in the hearts of his people and Satan being bound in the wilderness by Jesus, this person is probably what view? Okay, he's an Amil, right? Um, if the person talks about bringing in the kingdom and the gradual awakening or enlightening of the world's people that's going to usher in this millennium and the church is going to dominate and there's going to be the spiritual resurrection of the church and then Jesus returns and reigns, you're probably talking to what? Post-millennial. All right. There's one other major position, and that is the premillennialist. 
The word pre means what? Before. Very good. So a pre-mill believes that chapter 19 occurs before chapter 20 in the book of Revelation. He believes that the second coming of Jesus Christ precedes the thousand years of Revelation 20. What else does he believe? Well, let me briefly explain. Look back at chapter 19. Here's what he believes. Look at verse 11. He believes, verses 11 to 21, that at the end of the tribulation, the Son of God himself will return, verse 16, as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to overthrow the armies of the Antichrist, who's referred to in the passage as the beast. And he's going to cast the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, verse 20. In chapter 20, he then believes Satan will be literally bound with a chain and cast into the abyss. And that right here on earth, Jesus Christ, along with the resurrected tribulation saints and the church that has returned with Jesus, they will all reign with him for a thousand years on earth. That's what a premillennialist believes. You say, well, why would anybody believe that? Well, that brings me, I think, to what I want to call the watershed issue. Uh, I mean, people think that the watershed issue is the timing of Christ's coming with reference to the millennium. And they think that way because the names for these positions could give that impression, right? It's post-mill, pre-mill, ah-mill. And it gives the impression that the big issue is the timing of Jesus' coming with reference to the millennium. But that's only part of it. The real issue isn't that. It's not when Satan was bound. It's not if it's a real resurrection. It's not if the thousand years will happen at all, or they're happening right now and have been happening for 2,000 years and counting. Those aren't the watershed issues. Somebody tell me what is the single determining issue as to whether a person is amillennialist or postmillennialist or premillennialist. What's the big issue? Hermeneutics. Pastor Brian knows. <laughs> it's hermeneutics. It's the way you interpret. And the point, of course, is whether or not you're going to interpret how. Literally, that is the issue. Are you going to interpret chapter 20 literally as it stands and take the words as they are written, or are you going to spiritualize that terminology? That is the dividing point. Now, this isn't just my view as a grumpy premillennialist. Okay? Because the fact is, everybody agrees with this. Okay? For example, listen to an amillennialist, a man named Floyd Hamilton. He writes, We must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us such a picture of an earthly reign of a Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. You get that? That's the other camp talking. Just want you to know that. We must, I'll read it again. We must frankly admit, as our millennialists, that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of the earthly reign of a Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. Lorraine Bettner, the post-millennialist, he's the one that said all the false religions are dying and Christianity is flourishing. 
He says, premillennialists place strong emphasis on literal interpretation and they pride themselves on taking Scripture just as it's written. This general principle of interpretation has been expressed as literal whenever possible or literal unless absurd. But one does not have to read far in the Bible to discover that everything cannot be taken literally. The individual readers must use their own judgment backed by as much experience and common sense as they can muster. And that, of course, will vary endlessly from individual to individual. You understand that? You're saying that if you read your Bible, you're not going to get very far before you realize, hey, I can't take this literally. So what are you going to do? Well, use your own judgment. Uh, you've got Christian experience. You've got common sense. But of course, you have to understand now, that's going to lead to a lot of variety in interpretation from individual to individual. And that's why he closes his chapter in the book by appealing for Christian charity. And for all of us to respect one another, even though we have various views. Now, of course, that's something we should always do. Don't get me wrong. But you can see he's coming from a viewpoint that departs from literalism. And once you do that, he's admitting it himself, the sky is the limit. Now, what I want to do then in conclusion is just take you through a simple exercise. And I want you to turn to Micah 4. If you have your Bible, it'd actually be good. I'll have it on the screen. But... I want to read about 10 verses, and then I want to take you to the last chapter of Zechariah in a passage about the besieging of the nations, uh, uh, chapters 12 and 13, and then the opening of the fountain of the cleansing uh, for the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation, and then I want to end back in Revelation 20, okay? And the nature of this exercise is that I'm going to read these passages. I'm going to give you no interpretation. I just want you to listen. I just want you to take it just as it's written and see what you come out with. You understand what we're doing? All right. I'm not going to interpret anything. I'm going to read it. First of all, uh, I'll give you a little, a little bit of context in Micah so you know where we are. Micah is an 8th century B.C. prophet. He's prophesying just before the fall of the northern kingdom. Now, the heading of my Bible over chapter 3 says, rulers denounced. So at this point, Micah is blaming the rulers of Israel for the judgment God is going to bring on the nation of Israel when uh, first the northern king falls and then the southern kingdom falls. So let me begin reading with chapter 3, verse 9. Now hear this. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all iniquity. Equity, sorry who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, 
and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now turn to Zechariah 14. If you remember that in chapters 12 and 13, we've got the description of God uh, working with the nation of Israel over a future period of time. Uh, and all the nations of the earth are going to send their armies to uh, besiege that city. So, right at the end of chapter 13, look at verse 8. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. That's from all the nations attacking Israel. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. You can read verses 5 to 8 on your own, but look at verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one, meaning the Lord is the only one, and His name the only one. And you can read verses 10 to 15 and see how God destroyed those nations. But verse 16 And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. The family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations, who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And then finally, look at Revelation 20. All right, keep track of these events. Chapter 19, the coming of the King of Kings. Now, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw, after the coming of the King of Kings, all right, 
I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, for they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, what do you think is the plain meaning of those passages? You know, there's a beautiful simplicity in letting the literal language govern you and require you to take things as they are written. Of course, you know, there are things uh, in nearly any Bible passage and especially prophetic passages that we don't initially understand when we read them and we want some interpretation. But in general, just by reading passages like this, you can, you can pick this out on your own. But you, you can see there's going to be the coming of the Lord. I mean, his feet are going to touch down in Israel on the Mount of Olives. As the passage explains, well, that's the mountain just to the east of Jerusalem. So you know which one it is. That mountain is going to be split. Now, you've never seen that before. It never happened before, right? It's going to be split. And uh, there's going to be this great valley that has been created. And all these nations besieging Jerusalem, well, they're just going to be destroyed. You can read about the plague that God sends that just melts their flesh so that it runs right off their bones. And then the Lord is going to reign. And all the common vessels in Jerusalem, everything is going to be for His use. They're going to be all sacred. It won't just be the vessels before the altar. Everything is going to be sacred. And, and there's not going to be any Canaanite, no person of pagan beliefs in the house of the Lord. And when it comes to the whole earth, Every man is going to sit under his own vine and fig tree in safety because no one's going to rob him. No one's going to take it away. They're not going to have to worry. And nations won't have to learn war anymore. Their weapons of war are going to be converted into implements of agriculture and production. And Satan will be bound. So there's no more satanic deception on the earth. Imagine that. Tribulation saints who are martyred, well, they're going to be resurrected. And along with the church, they're going to reign with Christ. And all of this is going to happen for a thousand years. That's what those passages are talking about. Now, is it true or not? Depends on whether you take it literally or not. Because that is the big issue. Now, if you question whether or not to do that, and you say, well, you know, prophecy is a certain genre. And prophecy is symbolic because it's a prophetic genre. You want to do that, okay, I want to ask you this question. What is your options? 
okay? What other options do you have? Well, okay, this is what you've got to do. You're going to have to resort to private spiritualizing. And if you do that, who's to say whether you are wrong? Because what you just did is remove the governor. And now my opinion is no better than your opinion. Because there's no governor left in the language. Now, I'm not a genius, but that's pretty foolish. But in spite of that, Dr. Bettner, in his chapter on post-millennialism, post-millennialism get my tongue tied now, he warns against what he calls the fearfulness of literal interpretation. He calls it fearful because he says that a literal interpretation was responsible for the Jews rejecting the Messiah in his first coming. In other words, the Jews interpreted Old Testament prophecies literally, and as a result, they rejected the Messiah. I mean, they, they believed the Old Testament taught a literal kingdom and, uh, and the Messiah reigning on earth. And because they took those prophecies literally, while well, they didn't understand Jesus at all, they rejected him as the Messiah. That, that was their mistake. So don't do that when it comes to the second coming. Make sure you spiritualize it. Well, my response to that would simply be to say that the Jews rejected Jesus because they didn't take all of the prophecies literally, right? The Old Testament said he would be virgin born. Well, they didn't accept that, literally. The Old Testament predicted in Isaiah 9, 6, he would actually be mighty God. Well, they certainly didn't accept that, literally. In fact, that was the charge for which they condemned him and crucified him because he blasphemed when he said he was the Son of God. The Old Testament predicted he would give himself as a sin offering for us all. He said in the upper room that his blood would be the new covenant. If they'd taken all of that literally, then they certainly would have recognized him as God's Messiah. And when it came to expecting a literal kingdom and a literal reign of the Messiah, they were right in saying that some of those Old Testament prophecies predicted that. I mean, we just read about that literal kingdom, right? Like there were certain times when Jesus himself referred to a coming literal kingdom. Uh, he talked about uh, when the Gentiles would sit down with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he said that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and takes his throne, he's going to gather the nations around him. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to say to the sheep, enter into the kingdom uh, that's being prepared for you. So they were right that the Old Testament prophecies spoke of a literal kingdom. Jesus spoke about that. But he also clarified to them that right now, the kingdom he was presenting to them was a spiritual government of God. A government in the soul of a man. Remember that? He said to them, the kingdom is within you. The rule of God is within you. That's what I'm dealing with right now. In other words, if they'd taken everything he said literally, then it would not have been a fearful thing, but the very thing that would have led them clearly to a knowledge of the truth. So, please don't be afraid to interpret Scripture literally. Uh, it'll free you when you read prophecy if you interpret it literally. People don't interpret literally because they don't understand it. I don't understand what that says, so I'll just make something up. Well, that's not going to help you. Just because you don't understand it, because you've got a pea-sized brain, doesn't mean it doesn't mean something else. Just take it literally. Okay. 
A literal interpretation will free you from the fear that you might misunderstand something in prophecy. This is the liberty that comes with the restriction of a literal interpretation. And that is the foundation on which we are going to proceed in the book of Revelation. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for prophecy. We thank you for giving us glimpses into the future. We thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to that very much. We pray that while we are here on this earth, that we would act as pilgrims looking for that other time and that other place. Help us to live holy lives in this world. Uh, We thank you that uh, we can cling to the promises and the prophecies that are in your word and not be afraid of them. And we'll give you thanks for what you will accomplish as we come to the end of our study in the book of Revelation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.